Welcome to Podshot, everyone. Um, I'm Seb. Uh, both Alexes have been banished on this week's episode. Um, and it's also an anniversary for us. It's our 50th show, which is really nice. And I'm joined uh, by Loken. Loken, in the spirit of Arsene Wenger's birthday, happy birthday to the great man. Uh, what's your favorite late Wenger era Arsenal game? Um, I probably have an, like, this is probably not my true answer. Um, if I were to give it, if I were given a tiny bit more time to think about it, however, the ones that jump to mind are—is uh, this league? Just in the league? Free choice of everything. Okay, then I'll have to. I'll have to do if tw- if twenty fourteen counts as late Wenger era. I'll have to do the the whole three um, two World Cup, which ended our trophy drought because that was one of the just one of the best days in my that's, life. That's a fair enough answer. Uh, I'm also joined by Manas. Uh, Manas, what's your favorite late Wenger era Arsenal game? Yeah, I was gonna say the FA Cup as well. So I, I I'll pick the uh, the other one uh, where uh, Ramsey scored versus Chelsea uh, at Wembley and we won. Like that was an incredible game. The definitely not offside. Not offside. Goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, my answer is a bit different. Um, I have a strange nostalgia for that very late Wenger period. Um, there were two games in in late 2017. Uh, one was a 2-2 draw at the Emirates against Chelsea. And one was a 3-3 draw against Liverpool at the Emirates. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the walking in Winter Wonderland one. Yeah, def- that one, yeah. Where Xhaka scored that goal against Mignolet. Um, those were just some classic Arsenal goals where we just pushed everyone forward at the end and just did some crazy stuff. And those will always be in memory for me, I think. I Actually, I'm going to change my answer to the um, 2018 October 3-1 against Leicester, the Ozil performance, like the famous Ozil performance. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to cut you off there. That was Emery. That oh, was my Emery. God, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Let's get started. <laughs> Let's move on to the game at hand. Um, Arsenal travelled to the Stamford Bridge on Saturday, a ground they last lost at in 2018, playing Chelsea, who sat in the bottom half of the table before the game had started. Still, Chelsea started strongly with a number of transition opportunities and ultimately converted a controversially awarded penalty in the 15th minute. Arsenal was sloppy in the first half, failing to get any real chances on goal and went into the break 1-0 down. Mudrik, uh, a familiar face to all, then scored a fluky goal, having mishit a cross which looped over an awkwardly positioned Raya just three minutes into the second half. Arsenal had a mountain to climb, but climbed it if Climbed that they did. Uh, Rice scored a sensational first-time strike after Robert Sanchez gave him the ball uh, in his uh, in Chelsea's half. Before Leandro Trossard converted just seven minutes later after a in-swinging cross by Bukayo Saka. An afternoon of mixed emotions for Arsenal, who once again were painfully average and impressively resilient. Um, that seems to be the theme of this season so far, at least in large parts. And a lot of that is down to how we act in possession. Um, Loken, how do you think our in-possession game shaped up against Chelsea and their press, which, if I can say so, worked quite well? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think so. And um, I think, obviously, you've just said how, how Chelsea were in the, the bottom half of the table going into the game. And obviously, I think... I saw some stat during the game where they had one home win in their last 12. So like this is a club supposedly in disarray. But with that being said, I think 
They have been generally underrated this season from a performance standpoint. Um, they are particularly good in, out of possession. Um, and I think Poch has somewhat steadied the ship. And they are, in my opinion, from, from what I've seen, are, are decidedly better than what the league table shows. Um, yeah, so with that being said, I think we were pretty awful um, in possession. Um, kind of surprisingly so, just because it was this bad, but also not in as much as we've seen us with those types of performances, the same sort of familiar problems, um, exacerbated by what was a pretty good Chelsea out of possession game plan, sort of like a 4-4-2 with jumps. And I think Gallagher was just a monster. He's so good at that. Um, I still have PTSD with, from him under, under Vieira that one season. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, there's, we've talked about it before. We'll talk about it a little bit more again, but there were sort of little constancy in our structure as opposed to last season. It's a lot more adaptive, fluid, interpretive, um, which can work well at times against particular teams, um, and less so against, against other teams. And I think it was another game where we really struggled with technical consistency. And that is born out of that lack of structure. I think if you like compare and contrast to say Deserbi's Brighton, who very much sit in a fixed structure, um, receiving the same sort of environments and situations, the players, the two pivots closer together. Whereas for Arsenal, like that may be the case, or there may be one pivot like in the back line. You know, it, it's much more um, fluid, um, which can breed a lack of technical consistency. Um, and yeah, I think we struggled to garner any sort of rhythm throughout the the game. Yeah. On an aside, I think a lot has been made of Chelsea's spending, but I think what they have done is assembled a, a group of profiles that definitely raised their floor extremely well. Like their level of base performance is, is a lot higher than it was beforehand. Um, but I'd like to go into some of the, the lineup choices uh, for a second. Uh, we started with the same midfield we started with at uh, in the City game. Uh, Manas, why? Um, I think maybe uh, it's a little bit of injuries as well. Um, because there were rumors going around before, like, maybe Party will start. And I was thinking Saka might not start because he's not 100%. And he did not look his uh, himself in this game anyway right yeah i think kukurera pretty much nullified him for most of the game except certain moments in the second half um i think i don't i'm not too worried or i'm not, i'm not too you know against what the lineup was i think it was pretty much okay and we wanted we anyway wanted to see our first choice front three for a while now they've barely played like what like 15 minutes they've played so i think i'm not too fussed about that but in a game like this with how chelsea approached it off ball i think party would have been a better option to start instead of Jorginho. i would say yeah i think what specifically with regard to party and Jorginho, i i um yeah i think i mean Jorginho didn't i don't think had a terribly bad game um it's, it's sort of a quid pro quo. And I was having this, this conversation with my flatmate this morning as to, to whether Partey is the, the better player to have in the team when both are fit. Um, I don't know if Partey is fully fit anyways. Um, I don't know. I think th there's quite a attempted long balls over the top from the first line. Um, 
in behind. And it's something we see with Liverpool as well. And I, I, I did want to talk about it a tiny bit, just in that um, neither us or Liverpool have pivots that are pinning throughout the whole 90 and therefore drop to receive the ball when facing play. And often that causes jumps. Um, and I think we see a lot of instances where Jorginho and, and Partey, when he's playing there, like sort of whack a ball over the top to Sac- for Sacco or to, for Nketiah Martinelli, Jesus to run in behind. We didn't see much of that. Um, I think it worked quite well against City, not those long balls, but just those sort of one of the pivots um, shuttling out. Um, maybe, the, I mean, the, it's a smaller pitch at Stamford Bridge. I don't think that was particularly helpful to for that in-possession game plan. Um, I have more of a problem with the pivot situation out of possession given the approach that we adopted, which I think we'll talk about later. Um, but I do I do see what Manas means. I think Jorginho is less good with less local passing options. Um, and sometimes he's tasked being like a sort of like a deep line playmaker at times for us, um, which, yeah, I don't know. He can do it, but it's not his best sort of role. I think my overall point on Jorginho was like one he was sloppy uh i think even rice was sloppy like we were sloppy in the first 15 minutes where we gave it away um but there were there are times when he gets bypassed way too easily and once he does his head immediately drops and like because if the player is past him like he knows i'm not going to make it back so i'm pretty much done here and i think i know like uh, we'll get to this more deeply when we discuss like our off ball dynamics uh, and receiving back to goal. But there are so many instances where I feel um, there is just a lack of application from our pivots. And I can excuse Rice to a certain extent on this because he's still, you know, less than like about 10 games in, in a system like this. But I expect better from Jorginho, like to receive and face play, uh, to receive or position himself, provide angle support in certain instances. Or just hold your position at times. You don't need to go towards the ball all the time, uh, specifically horizontally. Um, yeah, I think party would have been would have made a difference just progression wise this game. I think. Uh, yeah, I just want to, like Seb. What do you think with regards to Jorginho? Because I know um, I think all of us actually have appreciated Jorginho on the podcast, but especially you and you and Alex because he is that sort of conventional number six profile. Um, but I get the impression it's more instructional. But I just yeah, what did, what do you think? Um, my, my general takeaway was that it was the wrong environment to put Jorginho in. Um, that's more off ball than on ball. Just the 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 way the game was stretched at points with Chelsea's press and everything didn't really help him out that much. And I I, th- I didn't really think Jorginho's on ball game was was a problem with us. I I think more so having Rice in the left uh, in the left pocket was more of an issue. I think that limited him a lot. And once he did come deeper and uh, was able to pick up the six positions when we were chasing the game. He became a lot more alive. Um, it was it was a, an outlier game against City where we did actually play with two pivots most of the time, so both of their involvement was higher than than it was. Um, and I, I think Rice uh, suffered more so than than Jorginho from Jorginho playing, which yeah, is what it is. But uh, to move on, um, 
Chelsea did uh, gummy up the middle a lot in this game. Um, were forcing us to go out wide a lot, and that meant a lot of um, situations where where Martinelli and Saka were receiving. Um, what what did you make of their performances individually, and and how we responded to Chelsea sort of forcing us out wide uh, generally in attacking situations? Whoever wants to go first. Yeah, I think very similar to the City game, they were happy to let us have the ball uh, go down the sides if possible and uh, just get really tight to Saka and really, really tight to Odegaard. I mean, we'll get to Odegaard later, but I felt there are two themes here. One, I think we just didn't take made too was too much of an advantage of the situations down the right because there were periods like there were instances in in the first half where we did get behind them uh, down the right side and additionally i think th- what we did really well was pin their right back uh, using rice and his running right so there were we and at, at some point we also started switching the ball uh, in the first half to Martinelli. And in those situations, again, like I felt like Martinelli did not take advantage. Like three or four times he got the switch and he was 1v1. Like he could have taken him on a little bit more, which he started then doing in the second half, which I assume Arteta would have, you know, said to him. Yeah, um, I, I think all of that's fair. I think um, the first thing I'd point out is is... And again, like this is like a whole chain reaction sort of thing. But I think we were too, like we too readily forced the ball wide for us in possession, which obviously is linked back to what we've just been talking about with the pivots. Um, and I think what that does, especially on a small pitch, is you tend to lose control because you're limiting the angles at which you can progress because you're not sort of trying to pin the middle. And of course, I don't think we were ever going to have that much success through the middle just because of the sort of profiles and the approach that Chelsea have um, in that team. Like a, a really good 4-4-2 with Caicedo, with Conor Gallagher. I think Palmer did really well uh, shadow covering some of the pivots at the time. So it's not like we were ever going to be good at that. However, I do think we lost control of the game by basically limiting the angles at which we could progress at. Um and thereon, I think you are forced to play in triangles with whoever your wide centre-back is, the winger, um, like Martinelli, who, who Manish has talked about, Osaka, and then you and, and the near side eight. And I don't think our dynamics are particularly good at that. Um, for ball-to-feet sort of stuff on the right-hand side, I think it is really good because the sort of synchronicity is there with all of the players. Um, and there are stuff that Rice can do from the left eight position that can help Martinelli, like sort of underlaps to help Martinelli get inside with his running power. Um, but I just think, I, I, I don't think there's enough dynamism in the team to help immediate uh, wide progression, um, given that we are so focused with the ball in those areas. And I think it, we tended to lose the ball um, in those areas at times, which is inevitable. And that actually led to the Mudrik goal was um, Odegaard losing the ball, I think it was, and Mudrik scoring that fluky goal. So yeah, I, I don't really love the dynamics at play. Um, number one, us being too wide in the first phase, first and second phases, and then also the players we have to sort of deal with those game environments. We'll, we'll come on to those dyna- dynamics later on in the pod. Um, but I'd like to go back to uh, what we did out of possession 
Um, we went man-to-man against Chelsea, which is something different from what we've seen for a large part of the season, especially against Tottenham, City, United, where we were more tempered and sort of made a more zonal hybrid approach to, to force mistakes in deep build-up. Um, first of all, why why do you think we did this? Uh, how surprised were you by this? And, and how did it sort of impact the game and the pros and cons of it, uh, Loken? Uh, yeah, I, first of all, I was really surprised. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, I mentioned the small pitch, so maybe that's one of the reasons why we thought the out possession plan could work. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I tweeted before the City game that I was actually really nervous with Jorginho starting at the six for this exact reason. And yet we had no problem with it because we covered the middle sort of in a hybrid way, whereas we were extremely man-oriented in the middle this time with, with one of the centre-backs pushing up and Jorginho on one man. Um, I and again I just wouldn't approach like blanket rule I wouldn't go man to man with Jorginho as a six I just wouldn't do that yeah um, so for that reason I disagree in in principle as it were um, that being said um, I don't want to have like some outcome bias sort of thing I think at times it actually did work well which I didn't notice uh, the first time around but in the rewatch I did uh, we had 12 high turnovers um, and they also Chelsea were forced to to kick it long some of the time and we recovered the ball um, I do think it is worth talking about the or, or just thinking about how viable a game plan it is because we didn't capitalize on any of those high turnovers like 12 high turnovers was it's a massive amount and it led to nothing to my memory at least um, like do we have the right players in the squad that are ruthless and I think the answer is no <laughs> um, and yeah, and I think it led to too many transition situations. Um, there are a few lucky bounces Chelsea had in the first half. I thought Mudrik actually played really well holding up the ball. Um, and I think w- one thing that I think was a big theme in the first half was the space between our first and second line. Um, because we had to sort of jump man to man, there were a number of times where they went out to Mudrik and Mudrik would have like this weird, like I don't know, control or wall pass into the middle and there was too much space in the middle of the park which is where Jorginho gets exploited. Uh, and I don't think you can fall on that sword. I, I don't agree with it. Um, so yeah, I disagree with it. I think it was effective because we're still good at it. Um, but I don't think with the players that we played yesterday, we're as good as we were last season with it. And I would have preferred to see Rice um, as the sixth in this game, out of possession particularly. Yeah, I, I'd like to come on to the, the uh, ruthlessness discussion in a bit but but first of all Manus uh your sort of overall perceptions of our out of possession game plan and how surprising it was to you yeah I think if Lawkins pretty much summed it up um summed up everything that I had written down mostly but I think just on the turnovers bit I think some of those uh stats are potentially not turnovers from pressing but uh sometimes you know there's a scrap down the side and you've hit it long and the and Chelsea get it and then you turn it over so some of those would be counted in those in those sort of situations uh but in terms of press I think we didn't do our hybrid press because we didn't we just had more of the ball like I think Chelsea were one just happy to let us have the ball and when we did press them high up they just went long just like Colville would just dunk it uh, long. There were so many. Uh, if you just go back and count, like you could definitely count about 10 times or so where Colville just hits it long. But I think they had pretty much prepared for this to happen because it always went down their left side. 
I mean, they barely played it towards the right side and then it went left and Corbett would just, without thinking, he would hit it long. And there were so many times where either White wins it or Mudrick wins it, doesn't matter. They were there for the second ball. Like Gallagher and Enzo were converging on that second ball. Very, very uh, intense uh, convergence on that second ball. And we just didn't because we were pressed up so high. And the space was so wide, so it needed Jorginho to drop. And at times he couldn't because, like, he was also involved in covering high up somebody high up. So I think they were prepared to do that and play for the second balls. Yeah, I, I think losing a large part of the physical battle was a big part of the game generally. Uh, I just looked, uh, Robert Sanchez had 18 long passes, and uh, Colwell the same. So that pretty much uh, sums up the thing. Um, I wanted to come back to to what Lorcan said about uh, the ruthlessness in high turnovers. Um, there were quite a few, uh, but what I would say is that generally those situations where there was some danger coming from the turnovers we had done were in situations where uh, Chelsea were building out deep and had quite a, uh, had a lot of personnel deep still. So when the turnover occurred, which was largely in sort of semi-wide areas, Chelsea had enough people back to to organize a defensive shape to not have immediate danger on goal after the turnover. It, it wasn't necessarily as profitable as it was against Spurs when when those high turnovers occurred, when when there was a lot more space to operate in. Uh, but I'd love to get uh, Manus's take also on that as well. When we did cause the high turnovers, I like one of them was where Caicedo gives the ball away and Martinelli wins it, and uh, which was the other one where we could have taken the advantage. I think it's this uh, Jesus shot which turns into a pass to the corner flag. I think that one. There was also one with Odegaard, like I don't know if you remember, just like kicking it out of play. It was like an overhit pass, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I think he just tries to play uh, Jesus in and he just goes out. Yeah, one, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, again, it just, uh, like, we weren't at our best yesterday going forward. Like, the application wasn't there. But we, like, we, we do, like, the system creates turnovers and, like, the players should be ready to take advantage of these situations. Like, we were, we did not, they, they were better competing uh, in the middle of the park and physically than us. So I think that's a big, big point. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. I think as well, it's just, it goes without saying maybe, but it is much more, I think our, our approaches, and we've talked about this recently, um, our approaches in these games are a lot more out of possession focused and gaining like a, an advantage. Um, and it's, it's just, it's harder to, to, to be technically consistent, to to execute on ball whenever high turnovers are and and sort of pressing in and getting um yeah winning the ball back is your medium of acquire of of getting that threat rather than like build up play. Yeah, uh, Logan, you brought this up. Do you think there's a general discussion there about ruthlessness in our attack or in our attackers? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't think anyone. I don't think that's that would be surprising to to anyone. I think that's fairly uncontroversial. I think a lot of the the threat that we were able to manufacture last year was got to do with sort of like uh, socio effective superiority and rotations and stuff. Um, 
and we don't really absent of a long shot from Odegaard or like say Fabio Vieira or, um, we don't really have sort of that ruthlessness to capitalise on that. I mean we, the Jesus example against Spurs is like the best sort of one to point to I suppose um, so it's just whether those marginal gains can actually tick over um, but yeah I don't know we are we are obviously really good out of possession and those high turnovers are definitely a good thing um, yeah I think we'll leave it there for now. Um, we'll take a little break. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about uh, some dynamics and some very, very familiar themes. But first, we'll leave you off with this sweet, jazzy jingle. And we're back. Lovely jingle aside, uh, we are back to talk about the Arsenal. Um, and we're back to talking about some themes that are really quite familiar to everyone here. Um, our resident uh, Martin Odegaard apologist Alex Collings is not here with us at the moment, which uh, gives us a license to talk about him a bit. Um, this is something uh, Lorcan especially will will, will uh, savor for himself. Uh, what, what did we make of, of Martin Odegaard's performance, which is probably one of his worst in an Arsenal shirt? I don't think I've seen him being this passive or this sloppy on the ball since I don't even remember when, like and it sort of fits the bill for our team where he, when he doesn't he's not performing we sort of look pretty much toothless uh, in attack like his passes are going stray he's when like he drops and plays the safe pass that's fine but he just didn't look like being in the game at all and obviously like we as a team were not able to find him in situations or between the lines at all either so at times, like, maybe just come deep, help out, or, like, situationally come center, come into the center circle, maybe at times receive the ball laid off. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't, I think he was very, very bad. Probably in the territory of where he should have been subbed at some point. Yeah, he, he was subbed in the end as well, um, which he, he can't complain about. Um, I think generally in a game where, where the physical aspect is highlighted that much and the involvement of the eights as a whole has was limited by Chelsea's game plan. Both of those things in, in accordance with one another really showed up Martin Odegaard's big weaknesses, uh, Lorcan. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, I think, obviously, like I don't take joy in criticizing Martin Odegaard popular to, to country, uh, to, sorry, contrary to popular con um, belief. However, like, I think the, the, the argument that I've had since since last year is we're only as good as Odegaard plays some of the time, which is what Manas pointed to, which is like a real floor raiser, um, but not necessarily a ceiling raiser. And it's just how valuable is a player relative to like what people hold him at? Because I know like people like he's one of the best midfielders in the world. Um, and he has, he has set himself really high expectations for, for really good reasons. He had an amazing um, campaign last year. And... I think it's still worth pointing out if we get him out of the team or rotate him more, um, which again doesn't look to be happening, um, how would we fare out of possession? Because he is just so crucial to what we do out of possession and that's not the flashy stuff and he won't get plaudits for that, but he deserves them. Um, but yeah, but it's how valuable is a player who 
doesn't who can't get himself in a game when we can't manufacture the exact sort of conditions for him to look good. And I think he does need those conditions to look good. He's not the sort of player who can take a game by the scruff of the neck, absent of us being putting him in a position to do that. Um and yeah, I think speaking more specifically now, I think he was back to that sort of high positioning, that sort of second striker positioning. Um and I was quite afraid of that even after the, say, like the Bournemouth game when he and the City game where he was a bit lower. I wondered how reactive that was as a as a medium for achieving control in the first phase. Um, and yeah, and he was back to that high right positioning. And like Mana said, we couldn't really find him in the pockets. He had very limited influence on build-up. He didn't really come short. Um, and I think Saka's performance benefited loads from getting Odegaard away from him or off the pitch. When Havertz was on that side, we looked much more dynamic on the side. And even in the second half, I thought Saka had a pretty good second half when he was isolated. Um, so I think it's just, it's a bit of a weird situation when two of your best players, you're putting them on the same side and they both come off worse because of it. Um, but yeah, again, I think it was the sort of game, like you said, Seb, where his weaknesses were really exploited because of the sort of team that Chelsea are. Um, and... Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a problem. Again, we're we're unbeaten in the league. We're we're still like joint top. I get it. Um, that doesn't mean we we don't have weaknesses. So that that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, on that, uh, it seems like a, probably in too obvious a question, but do you think uh, Udegaard's high positioning also was a consequence of playing Rice in the left eight? Yeah, I would say so. Um, just in that, in general. Rice was was in that pivot situation at times. Obviously, he was in that high uh, um, left half space as well. But you don't expect Odegaard to come deep as much when your other interior is going to be doing that. Because we did see times when Zinchenko was high left um, and Rice came into that double pivot. Yeah. Um, a question to both, perhaps. Just the last word on Odegaard. Um, do we think, A, that taking Odegaard out of some game states... Uh, also from the start would benefit the team generally and is that something we can do slash does Udegaard give us so much out of possession that it's justifiable to take him out because of what he gives us in possession in some some games yeah I do I do appreciate that for some listeners this might seem like a weird conversation because he is our skipper um, he's just come off a really good campaign statistically and performance wise and it is a bit of an echo chamber sort of Twitter sort of thing like it's not being talked about I don't think at the stadium I've been there this year but um, it and it's it's not necessarily even being talked about in, in mainstream media either um, but yeah I, I think so um, I think I think we owe it to ourselves to begin doing it I think it is quite telling that like he came off when we were looking for a goal Um not like incredibly damning or anything, but I think it is quite telling that it's something that doesn't usually happen, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think we've given ourselves less scope to do it just because like you said, Seb, he's so important to our out of possession stuff, which is even more important for us this season than it was last season. And also I don't think we've had, we found that sort of balancer midfielder profile that we were kind of looking for in the summer, but then it ultimately went to, um, shifted down the priority list um, through injuries and stuff but were we to have like someone who I wanted like a Locatelli on the other side um, 
then we could employ someone of a completely different profile to Odegaard's position, uh, to Odegaard's one in the right eight role um, and still have that balance in the team, if that makes sense, which I don't think it's, it's quite hard to achieve that if we were just to take Odegaard out and put, say, like Smith Rowe in. Um, so, yeah, it's tough. It's a tough one. I, don't, I really don't know whether we can do it um, because Odegaard is still so crucial to our to to our floor. Um, but I think we should at least experiment in, in certain game states. Mm, I'd say it may be worth leaving him out of game states where we want to defend in a mid-block and we don't want to necessarily push on and press a lot. Um, but... I think in terms of who he is and what he means to the team, I'm I struggle to see where or when Mikhail would Mikhail would drop him um, rather than rotate him. So like those are two different things. But again, like it needs to be a it's it needs to be based on merit. And if he doesn't perform like he doesn't perform in a few games, then he deserves deserves to sit on the bench for a while. And it's not like we don't have options to play in the right center. Like we have options. So, yeah, I mean, it's totally, like, it, it depends. Um, if he doesn't play, then he needs to sit up. If he doesn't play well, then he needs to sit up. Yeah. I do agree that it's it's a Twitter echo chamber thing largely, but I, I think a lot of that is also driven by now having a lot of alternative profiles that could play in that position. If we contrast that with last season, Emil Smith-Rowe was constantly injured and not really in the team. Fabio Vieira was still finding his feet, so we sort of defaulted back to Odegaard, and he was the primary guy in that position. Now we have Smithrow being back to a certain extent in the team, Vieira improving a lot, and also Kai Havertz, whose optimal position is probably there. Uh, all theoretical possibilities to replace Odegaard or rotate with him at least. Uh, so I think that drives a lot of the, the discussions around there as well. Um, and speaking of of those alternatives, one of them that did come on when when Odegaard came off was Kahavats, uh, who started off on the left hand side of midfield, switched over to the right, switched over to a sort of second striker position later on in the game. Uh, what did we make of that performance, Lorcan? I'd like to give him a round of applause because <laughs> I feel like some people think I'm a bit of a Kai Havertz hater, which is not the case. Uh, I, I thought he did really well. I I think. Really, really well. Um, he had most aerial duels won in uh, amongst the Arsenal team, and that was in twelve minutes of playing. Um, and like you said, he played in that sort of target man, second striker role of the right. And I think, again, people will say. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago. People will say he did nothing special. Um, and again, I'll say that's entirely the point. Um, I think we saw some of the best, just functional parts of his game. Um, which he can only do from that sort of that side of the pitch and also that high up. Um, we saw him win first and second balls. Um, we saw him connect play, just the simple stuff, um, which makes everything else that much easier. Um, so yeah, I thought he had a, a, a quietly very good 12 minutes, nothing special, but also changed the game, which I think says all you need to know. I think changing the game, <clears throat> that's probably the biggest thing he's done, right? Like, uh, that was a point in the game where Chelsea largely were controlling uh, territory and possession. Um, and we did get the goal through Declan uh, Rice before he came on. But again, that was a simple individual error. But once he came on, we, we were able to quickly cover territory and get up the pitch and do things. He also uh, did the layoff to Saka for the cross for, for Trossard's goal. Uh, Manas, 
what, what was your opinion of his performance generally? Yeah, I think he, it was very accomplished and it says a lot where he comes on in the last 12 minutes and he does a lot more uh, connective play than Odegaard managed all game. Like he's like receiving back to goal, like pressed by three different people and still manages to lay off the ball perfectly for a teammate. And then towards the end of the game where Chelsea defending deep, he goes like he wins every header, every throw in uh, that we throw at, on, at his head. I think like yeah, he was he was very good. Uh, he picked up good positions as a sec- second striker, less sort of right sentiment, especially for the goal where he's like perfectly positioned to receive and then lay it off to Saka on the right. So I think yeah, he was he was very good, and that's usually what you want, right? Like outside of I know we want to talk about goals and assists from him because that's what we thought, like that's what we want, but like you also want like him to do a 7 out of 10 job in every game that he plays. So, I think like very good on him. And yeah, it's a good, good book, 12, 15 minutes of performance. Yeah. Um, this probably isn't as much as a talking point as, as it is, um, but but I'd like to make it one. Uh, we've, we've seen probably the most league minutes of ML Smith Rowe in a single game this game. Um, game state induced, he didn't really have as much involvement as, as he probably would have hoped for. But uh, I, I had this discussion on Twitter, which is why I wanted to bring it into this part. Um, does Smithrow's absence for the last 18 months sugarcoat his weaknesses in the eyes of people wanting him to come back into the team? Or is, is he someone who can be a definite solution, especially now that a midfield spot is sort of up for grabs with the left eight still not being decisive? And sort of more, more specifically, what does he bring into the team that no other player in, in the team would bring in in those instances i think it's hard to say because we really haven't seen that much of him from the left eight or just in general um i'm i think he'd be more um yeah i think he could be sort of the difference making in in certain games more so if we had the i mean i, I talked about how like if we had like a locatelli type in i don't really think his his the interior pairing of him and Martin Odegaard works too well. Um, I, I I still have the belief that he's more of an attacker, um, a number 10, than he is a, a proper interior midfielder. Um, I don't think like setting tempo is his, is, is, is that much of his um, strength. Um, we saw him perform really well from the left eight role in, in the final bits of like the community shield game. Um, and that was when we sort of had two high eights and the game state was very much in that favor and and that's when he can perform well there um that being said i think i don't think it's terribly balanced with him left eight and martin odegaard right eight um and yeah it, it i think if he were given the superior platform to do the stuff that he does really well like sort of running power um uh, overlaps on Saka's side for example i think he might be like look a lot better um that being said and as you said at the beginning, he's been out for the last like 18 months on and off, mainly off. Um, so it's very hard for him to find any sort of rhythm. Yeah, I, I also always had him down as a, as a rhythm player and someone who, who gains momentum with continued playing time. And that hasn't come around both through selection and also through just his own fitness, which nobody can blame anyone really for. But uh, Manas, your general thoughts there? Yeah, um, 
I definitely do do think that, and it, this is a very general sort of thing that happens that the player who's not playing is usually the answer. So definitely, like some of his uh, rather uh, you know the qualities that are not desirable do get to like you know get shadowed a little bit when he's not playing. But I think what he does give is a very superior connective play and lo- and relationism sort of play. Like he's he's the Wenger typical Wenger footballer, but like. On contrary, what Lawkins said, I feel like uh, two eighths of him and Odegaard could work. Um, because when I do think uh, like how it works for City, it could work. But then, yeah, it completely comes down to the rest of the team and how you build, uh, you know, the rest defense around those players. It could work, but now that the left eight spot is also up for grabs. Like, there is a chance. Like, I, I feel he should get some minutes because we've already seen Vieira do it. We've already seen Trossard do it at some point. So it's his, like, he needs to get a turn there maybe. But potentially not in the Premier League, I think. Not yet. Um, moving on from midfield, I think we've covered that that uh, generally quite well. Um, there was another interesting sub, uh, which was Tomiyasu coming on at halftime. Um, he seems to be coming on a lot for, for Zinchenko in that position and sort of shadowing what he's doing. Um, I, I'd like to get some general impression of how well he's doing in that role and if he could, in a world where we're seeking more defensive solidity down that left side, be a genuine alternative to start to Zinchenko in in games. I did see him do a lot of central pinning and being the nominal six when uh, Jorginho was acting as the right centre-back at times. And he was pretty comfortable doing that, even when. But that was that was in the second half, and Chelsea was sitting much deeper in the second half, like they were not pressing as intently as they were uh, off the bat. But I, I think it's an option. Like I don't think that. So I'd say it's a safer option than having Zinchenko in the center. But Zinchenko still gives you a way more progressive passing options than Tomiyasu does. So it. He could start it left from left back, but it would need to be balanced somehow with uh, uh, other dynamics, uh, like other players starting in, in the midfield. I guess. Yeah, I think he's. I, I think he's incredible. I think like the diversity of of roles that he's that he can do and that we haven't seen him do, but also the ones that we have seen him do for us, like. A, an overlapping fullback from right back in the, in the first season, which of course I, I don't think I wouldn't want him doing that now. Um, but left back, centre back, facing, re- um, receiving, facing play, receiving, not facing play. Um, I think it would obviously, I think it would be silly to to say that he can, I think he's mainly there for his, what he can offer us in defensive transition situations. Um, uh, so in rest defence um, and all the other stuff in terms of like inverting which is more situational than Zinchenko in general, but then also inversions have been more sent, more situational generally for us this season compared to last season. Um, so him in the Zinchenko role last season, I think whether it, it, there is less sort of dynamism and, and fluid stuff going on, not as good because he can't pin like Zinchenko does. Um, but I think he's now been tasked with with coming on and doing that role sometimes such that he knows what to do and he can at least do it functionally, especially when we're doing the fluid stuff. Um, so I don't think he will, I don't think there's any, I don't think he can displace Sinchenko there really long-term. 
um, in terms of, I don't think like that, that's the plan. Um, but I did want him to come on at halftime. Um, another thing which I haven't actually said, which was the first thing I said at halftime was, it's quite funny how a team predicated on its athleticism has Jorginho and Zinchenko in rest defence against a team that was purposefully trying to hit us on the counter. I think that's a bit naive. Um, so yeah, I think functionally it works really well. Um, but I think it, we can't kid ourselves and say he's a specialist as that pivot in the way that Zinchenko is. Yeah, I agree. It, I mean, we're, we're still talking about our probably our best progressive pass in the entire team, which you know gives us something. Um, th- there was one last big talking point to talk about, um, which is uh, the goalkeeper situation. Um, the court of public opinion isn't very kind on David Raya at the moment uh, after the City game and the wobbles there and the goal conceded, which we could talk about, but I think we all agree isn't necessarily on Raya as such and more of a freak situation than anything. Um, but but I'd like to pick your brains generally on the, the change, uh, how it worked, and if if the change from, from Ramsdale to Raya is, is worthwhile and something that improves the team generally? Um, I will say that I refrain from having an opinion about Raya and still kind of somewhat want to take that position um, just because goalkeeper is something that's quite foreign to me. Um, that being said, I did actually write an article about the, this past week about goalkeepers more generally and the return of the long kick and Raya was a crucial part of that. And I completely see why Raya is in the team. And if I were to take a position, I kind of do agree with it, just in that he fits well into how we can quickly progress the ball absent of um, having pivots pinning, which I know I've talked about quite a lot now and is quite boring. But um, I think he allows us to pin in the first line by sort of upshifting into that auxiliary centre-back role. Um and he obviously has the passing range. I think I'm going to quickly say something about the goal. I think it was his fault. It was fluky, but it's happened twice now this season. It happened against Spurs as well, whenever he... Uh, Spurs' second goal, which again was a Pape Matasar mishit, which is fair enough. It's not going to happen a lot, but it's happened twice now. Um, and I also caught a moment. I think I have it time-stamped, actually. Um, but... Yeah, I don't have it on me, but there was a moment, I think early in the second half or late in the, no, late in the first, when Gusto had a mischance on the counter and he was so far out of goal, like ridiculously so. So I think he makes up for his lack of height by being by taking too aggressive a position. That's my like casual take. I don't really know much about goalkeeping, but it seems to be the case. Um and then quickly, I think, yeah, generally just what he offers us in possession, because he nearly gave away another goal today, uh yesterday by giving it to Palmer, which was a really bad pass. But we are, I think it's worth mentioning, we are putting so much onus on him as a decision maker. He's being used almost as like a quarterback, sort of where there's so much movement going on. There was a ball, I think we talked about it on the group chat, where he kicked it over to White and we we broke two lines of pressure. And that's it, like working at its best. Um, but that being said, I think he has to be completely aware of how he can bait man-to-man presses, how... Uh, White's going to be making a particular run or of who's going to be available at a particular time and then when to make that pass. Um, and I don't think Raya, uh, sorry, Ramsdale is trusted from a temperamental standpoint to do all of that stuff, which is, I think, explains some of the confusion why everyone's like, well, Ramsdale can kick 
really well long as well as Raya. That's what I said when we bought Raya as well. I was a bit confused. But I think there's so much onus on when to do it and the awareness of what defensive schemes are doing and how to manipulate all of that. Um, yeah, so it's a complicated one. I still don't really have a... a I'm saying that he has a lot of responsibility, but he is also, in my opinion, like he can't keep being so far off his line um, and hopefully doesn't keep giving the ball away in his own penalty area. But I understand that as well. Yeah, the, the passing is interesting um, because it, there's been a few moments where he was pressed to his left and those were ordinarily the ones that led to uh, missed passes and dangerous situations. Think back to the uh, Alvarez chance against City. Um, and I'm, I'm still undecided of how much that is just nerves or sort of lapse decision-making and how much of that is just a technical weakness in his game um perhaps you have an opinion on that either of you but i'm still very undecided on how i see that i say it's a lot more nerves um because you can tell with the way that he's passing like he's usually very good at uh, long kicking as well but in this game he i think he put the ball out down the sides two or three times when he could have found um the fullback who's pushed up but i think in general in this season Going for Raya was predicated upon the fact that I think it's Arteta maybe predicted that teams would deny us the center this season. And because we were integrating Rice, we'd find it difficult to, you know, do our usual central progression. So there there needed to be a sort of shift in how we build deep. Now we don't do the usual 3-2, we do a 4-2. So now when we're doing it deep, we need to have a man advantage and that's the goalkeeper. So that's why he plays as a centre-back. So you can push the full-backs higher. But like Vinos, we're still not making advantage of taking advantage of those situations. I think where Chelsea pressed us really well. But Raya could have accessed White or Zinchenko with a sort of a medium pass, which he did with White once. Like it was a great ball. And like those passes were always on because the wingers were tugged in. Um... So I think that's the sort of overall thought process on Raya, but I think definitely right now he's not performing to the level that perhaps the goalkeeping coach who's watched for him thinks he can perform at. And he's probably temperamentally, he's better than Ramsdale playing with ball at feet and just like stepping on the ball in those situations. Yeah. So I think it's it's nerves right now. And like, I'm, I'm more annoyed at the pass that he made to Palmer like which should have been a goal uh, rather than like him getting chipped a couple of times this season. I have um, just two more things to add. The first one is I think it sounds counterintuitive to say because the goalkeeper position is about like saving and that's what we tend to think. But I think the Raya inclusion goes hand in hand with a lot of our, like here's another player on the pitch to help us on the ball as well as being a goalkeeper off the ball. Um, and I think it goes hand in hand with our general philosophy this season in terms of how we've looked to progress, which of course we've talked about a lot so far in this podcast and in past ones. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, I'm just going to include a, a, a quotation, which I think everyone heard uh, that Peter Schmeichel said before, I think it was before, I oh know it was late September. So it must've been before the City game, um, but it, maybe like the Bournemouth game or whatever. But he said, um, about the goalkeeper situation because he didn't agree with putting Raya in. He said, 
there's no proactive action happening. It's about the goalkeeper. Everything you have to do is something that you have to do when somebody else is doing something. You have to react to that. You can't be proactive and go out and create a save for yourself. It's the most reactive. The idea is the, it's the most reactive role or, or position on, on the pitch. And I completely understand why he said that. He's a treble winning goalkeeper himself, one of the best in Prem. I could not disagree with him more. Like this is not the modern goalkeeper. And I know it sounds like just a, a very cliche thing to say, oh, the game's changed, it's passed you by. But genuinely, there is so much responsibility on Raya in possession, in knowing what happens, at least in my opinion. Um, and for better or for worse, maybe you can say it's for worse and that's fair enough. But nowadays there there is, there's a lot of proactive things you can do as a goalkeeper with the ball at your feet. And that also carries over in defensive actions from goalkeepers, right? Like the, the amount of sweeping keepers do now and pushing up to to keep the keep the line high the responsibilities just changed massively right um yeah I, i think we can leave it there uh that the, i think there's one more question i'd like to ask because it's something that brought up in the group chat um guys is this a point gained or two dropped at two i'd say two points dropped yeah why why would you say that because like we should be playing better and like we're the better team right now so it's two points stop if we didn't show up two points stop okay Logan yeah I I because I said two points dropped as well and I tweeted about it um I I, I will actually change my my um answer I, I agree with what you said initially Seb um I think it was one of our bad days and I think that is pretty inexcusable um I think we're obviously contending thinking that we're contending for the league this season so if on a bad day we've get, got a point then you're like it's tempting to say oh we could have just played a little bit better and we would have got three points it's not really how football works to be fair um but yeah i think in the grand scheme of things it, i guess it was a point gained um and i do want to ch give chelsea their respect i think they were good they set up well and I wouldn't be surprised if they got a Champions League spot this season, honestly. I think that if it's even if it's like fifth place, because um, fifth place does get Champions League this season. But yeah, I thought I'm, I'm halfway between the two. I'm oscillating. Yeah. What about yeah, you? I very much took the position of it's a point gained in a game where our weaknesses were shown up like that and we lost the physical battle and sort of made strange decisions at points. Coming out of there with a point, with with morale boosted as well, with with the late goal and everything, that that's a point you take. Um, it it's bad because the performance was bad, but that's sort of independent of the result itself. Um, so you take that with you. You you look to improve. Hopefully, some of those things will resolve themselves. Uh, that that's how I'm choosing to look at it uh, at the moment. Um, and I, I think we can leave that there for now. Um, thank you everyone for listening to. Uh, the 50th episode of Podshot. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about the game against uh, Sheffield United, who just narrowly lost to Manchester United because they are quite bad. Um, anyway, if you want to follow us on our socials, uh, they're all linked in the description. Follow uh, Podshot on Twitter, follow us on Twitter if you uh, choose to do so. Uh, if you like this pod, you can also leave a review on your uh, podcast searcher. Uh, the music is done by James Blake. You can find him on Spotify at JWBlake. Um, all that leaves me to say is thank you for listening. Goodbye.